welcome back to Jetbangers Ball. Today on the show, we have Larry Hardy, owner, operator, visionary behind <laughs> In the Red Records. Uh, In the Red is celebrating uh, their 25th anniversary this year, uh, so we thought this would be uh, as good a time as any to have Larry on the show. So um, that's what we did. Other than that, Zigzags have a new album coming out this month. Uh, it comes out May 20th. Our first album, as some of you know, was on In the Red. Uh, Larry put it out. Um, this second album, which is called Running Out of Red, no relation to In the Red, other than that was kind of a joke we made on tour, um, is actually coming out on Castleface Records. Um, <clears throat> You can go to castlefacerecords.com uh, and order it. Uh, they have the colored vinyl. I am sold out of colored vinyl. I'm doing an ad for myself here right now. I never do this, but this time I'm going to do it because we need it. We need the help. Um, we are sold out of the colored vinyl, uh, the band copies. Um, you can still get records from us. Uh, we're going to have tapes and new t-shirts and all that shit. So you go to zigzags.bandcamp.com check out all that stuff but if you want the colored vinyl of the album Castleface is the only place to have it or to get it right now um, and they are at castlefacerecords.com uh, we're playing a record release show May 21st the day after the record comes out at Permanent Records here in beautiful Highland Park California um, with a band called The Numerators from Austin, Texas that goes on at 6 o'clock uh you can find all that stuff online if you want to figure out where it's at and all that shit. But in the meantime, uh, let's talk to Larry Hardy of In the Red Records, and uh, I'll see you in a minute. It was super weird. Um, so, twenty-five years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm doing like a professional version here now. <laughs> twenty-five years of In the Red. No one's more surprised than me. Yeah. Um, I read that. Uh, I read that uh, Mitchell and so you're doing the festival at the at the Echo in July. How did how did that come about? Because I read that they were trying to get you to do it for the twentieth. Yeah, they were. They've been asking me for a long time, and I never wanted to do it because uh-huh. it's a lot of figuring things out, a lot of bands that don't live around here, and just never wanted to put on a festival. And then, yeah, we ran into him at Whole Foods, and I was with my wife, and he brought it up in front of her, and of course, she was really into the idea, so she's like, you gotta do it. Right. It's 25 years, so I thought, all right, I might as well. So reluctantly, you're being dragged into Well, I'm happy it's happening now. It was just committing to it, and then having to, like, now I gotta talk to a bunch of bands, some of them I haven't dealt with in a long time, and coordinate the whole thing, and, you know. But I mean, it's cool. How's it? How's it? How was the response from the bands? Like, all of them were into it. it yeah. Was, yeah, yeah. Didn't have too many people saying no. Um, you know, I I asked Pussy Galore if they'd do a reunion because they did one a few years ago in New York, and they said no. Um, right. But John's coming out with Boss Hog anyway. Um, but yeah, everyone seemed into it. Um, and how, how do you go? How do you go about organizing something like that? As far as like flights and stuff like i mean just a lot of that thankfully is up to the club and the booking agents and so the booking agents say we need flights and here's our guarantee and then the club's got to figure out the budget and who we can have and who we couldn't have right Um, 
And so, yeah, thankfully that's left to them. Although there's some bands that I'm having to actually fly in myself. Right. So, yeah. Um, so then let, let's just we'll, we'll come back to that because I wanted I wanted to hear a little bit more about it. But uh, so let's go back. Where did where did you grow up? Did, are you from L.A. then? No, I'm from Orange County. OK. Well, so, yeah. <laughs> where in Orange County? I'm from Anaheim. Uh-huh. Um, then, yeah, I was living in Fullerton when I started the label. Oh, not unlike uh, you're like the original Burger Records. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Burger Senior. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I don't know what that would make me as far as a food product. The hoagie, <laughs> yeah, the like, yeah, original version. That's funny. Uh, so you grew, you grew up in Anaheim, and, and uh, what, what were your folks doing down there? Um, my folks separated when I was really young, and so my mom was uh, well, she remarried, and uh, then her husband passed away, and she's basically been housewife ever since. Yeah. Had worked for my stepfather for a while before he passed on. He had his own business, hanging draperies. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious as to what, like, your your early jobs were, as you know, as running a label and, you know, being an like being basically the only guy at the label for a long time. Or, you know, now you have Danae, but, and then you have yeah. Jimmy. And, but, like, it's kind of... Uh, running a record label as a as a as a only person, I, I was interested. What like what kind of jobs did you have before? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, hanging draperies, like which in um, Orange in Anaheim in Anaheim. But then it would take us all over Orange County doing it, like going and hanging them in like senior citizens' homes, and yeah. What years was this? That would have been like early mid eighties. Uh huh. And then late 80s, I worked in a grocery store. Uh-huh. And then I w- was still working in the grocery store when I started the label. But really? I was just putting out singles. So What was, was the grocery store? Albertsons in Huntington <laughs> Beach. <laughs> <laughs> this is fascinating. Okay. Yeah, no, it was it, it was funny because, yeah, at that time I was, like, putting out records and I would have, like, friends from New York calling at the grocery store to, like, you know, John Spencer's on line one and asking me questions about their single. And I'm like in an apron. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite things is I have this uh, cassette of it. It's like an old, uh, it's an old live show of Metallica from like 83 or something like that. Right. On one side. And the other side is Dave Mustaine doing an interview right after he had gotten kicked out of the band. But he's at work. Right, and the guy's calling him from New York from some like metal zine, and he's, you can hear him like get off the phone and go like, "I'll stay later." The guy's calling from New York. Hold on, like, <laughs> I wonder mom. where he was working. I think it was like, I think it was like some kind of telemarketing thing, or I can't remember what it was, but it's like it's him telling his boss that he'll stay afterwards because he's doing an interview. Now he's from Huntington Beach, isn't he? Is he? Yeah, yeah. I think he, that's where he's got to start anyway. I don't know. Were you seeing like bands like that when you were when you were a kid down there? Not bands like that. I was into punk rock, so I was seeing like, immediately. Yeah, yeah. Like I found out about punk rock. How did you find out about it? Um well, I bought a lot of records anyway, so I had older friends, and so I found out about the Ramones, and this one friend told me to listen to Rodney Bingenheimer's radio mm-hmm. show on KROQ, and I tuned in to, to listen to Queen, that he was going to interview Queen, who I liked, and then he played the Sex Pistols for a single, it had just come out, and right. then he played the Damned for a single, and it was just like, my head exploded, and that was... Yeah, from that point on, that was, like, my thing. And because it was, like, kind of, well, 
if you were into Queen or like maybe like maybe like glam rocky stuff, it was just like sped up or. Yeah, well, it didn't. It sounds like that to me now, but it didn't sound like that to me then. Like uh, the Sex Pistols sounded crazy compared to Queen or David Bowie or Sparks or the stuff I was listening to. I mean, it definitely sounded gnarly, and the Damned really sounded gnarly. Yeah, right? so they're really fast, but. Well, that early damn stuff too. I think I talked about it on here before too. For some reason, that band always gets brought up. That those recordings sound so like pro and loud to me in a way. Like every time the damned comes on, uh, it, like if someone's DJing and they play them, or you're listening to like an iPod or something, it always sounds so much louder than the band previously. Huh? Yeah, but that first album does sound insane i don't nick lowe produced them and it's in a tiny studio it wasn't yeah. like a really nice studio but like the sound he got is insane a ton of drums ton of like snare going the whole time or a crash cymbal going through that the entire record yeah it sounds raw and like super like punk rock or whatever but but like also like really just big and i don't, I don't know how they fucking got that i don't either i I wish I wish I could figure it out. <laughs> that first album sounds amazing, and it sounds like there wasn't a lot of thought put into it, right? Into the way they recorded, just lucky. But yeah, I so I started going to punk shows in Orange County, and that's what I did for years until. Where uh, were they having them? Was it like the Cuckoo's Nest? Yeah, in Costa Mesa was having them. I started going there. I started going to shows at the end of '77. I was. Oh wow! I had an older friend who would drive me to Hollywood so yeah he would bring me to shows so to go yeah. to like the mask or something or never got to go to the mask but um went to the whiskey a lot um Santa Monica Civic and Starwood what were some of the bands that you were seeing um like well the germs I saw the first show I ever saw was Iggy um and let's see I saw the germs saw X saw the bags saw the screamers Saw a lot of that early, weirdos, dickies, right? Like all that early. This is kind of like stuff. the pre-hardcore LA sort of yeah, stuff. Yeah, which I preferred. Although when hardcore came, I was really into that initially. Like you know, love Black Flag, Adolescence. That's when that stuff started happening more in Orange County. You could see that every weekend in Costa Mesa at the Cuckoo's Nest. Right. That's the kind of I was wondering because since you were from down there, but you related kind of more to the LA scene or well yeah that was a, i was into it when that was happening before it started happening where where i lived so i was initially coming to hollywood with older friends and then it, yeah, a few couple years later it became like staying down in orange county more and was there did, did you feel like uh there was kind of like a dividing line between the two scenes or was there like oh yeah 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 you could tell like the older people didn't dig it when suddenly there was a I kind of didn't dig it either. <laughs> there was like suddenly all these like jocks who were into slam dancing, into fighting, and you know, extra violent and aggressive. And it wasn't like that at the first shows I went to. Right. There was a lot of girls in the crowd, and it was like an artier, older crowd. And all of a sudden, it became a younger, more athletic crowd. Yeah. Well, it became more like uh, just like. Well, there's more just guys, like a more testosterone kind of... Yeah, it was jocular, which was what I didn't like. That's why I was going out to punk shows initially. I wasn't hanging out with jocks in high school. I was going to punk rock shows, and suddenly, now there's jocks. Right. 
<laughs> so you're going to these shows and stuff, and then and then so you you graduated high school, and what 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 was the plan then? No real plan. Went into college, and I thought I was going to be a graphic artist. That's what I'd majored in, and then got disillusioned with that. And then at some point, yeah, got into the idea of doing records later on. And were you doing a, posters and stuff for bands, or I did do flyers for bands um, early on, but I didn't do a lot of that. I thought I was going to go into ad- advertising. That's right. what I wanted to do, but then. I lost interest once I was in school and started getting my degrees. Was like, Where were you going to school at? Cal State Fullerton. Okay. Um, yeah. So then I moved to Los Angeles with a, a girl that I was seeing at the time, and she played in a band. And it was around that time. It was like right before we moved to L.A. I started When I was living with her, I started the label. What band was that? She was in the Pandoras, and okay. then she was in the Muffs. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So then, you, you, then what? What made you think like oh, I'm going to start a record label then? Because uh, back at that time there was like not a lot of indie. There was sub pop, I guess. Yeah, no, just around. just to do it. Just because it was like I'm a big music fan. I buy a lot of records. I go see bands, but I don't want to be in a band. But it'd be cool to do something. Yeah. What were you? I mean, what what was the 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 record collecting impetus? Like, where did that where did that start from? Just, just it was. I started buying records when I was like a kid. Like yeah. I, I was always into rock music. Were your folks My into fr- record, records or like? No, no, no not like not into rock music at all. They were way older parents that that probably helped. Is that my father like hated that stuff? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it made it seem cooler. Yeah. So you just started collecting like singles and. Yeah, buying records whenever I could. That was just yeah. That was my thing. Were you was, buying records from the bands at shows too? I did later, although back then there was like those punk shows. Bands didn't always have records or T-shirts. Yeah, that's what so, I was wondering. Like, yeah, that, to, that wasn't there wasn't a merch table at the Cuckoo's Nest. It ever. seems like today there's so much like merch, and that's a big part of it, and and it's a good thing because it just like helps you keep like going or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But like you didn't, I didn't, I didn't see like uh, a lot of the shirts that I see like in old photos of bands and stuff almost look kind of like. They're almost like homemade ones, and there's they didn't have like, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know why they didn't. Because uh, yeah, I used well, then I guess some of the bigger bands started to like. I'm sure Black Flag must have made shirts. Right. And I remember selling T-shirts for TSOL when I was younger at one of their shows. <laughs> so they they started making T-shirts. You were you were doing the merch table for TSOL? Yeah, just a couple times. Right. Yeah, they were friends of mine. And but I mean, that band seems like uh, they seem like one of the more jocular bands of the. They had a jocular following, but they weren't jocular musically. Right. They, they, they stood out amongst all that stuff at the time. They were kind of like the Southern California version of the Damned. Like, right. they actually added keyboards and... When they, they like, would, they wore some makeup and stuff. And they wore makeup and their hair yeah. was longer than the standard issue. And so, yeah, they, they stood out. But they were also big dudes that you couldn't mess with. So. Yeah. They were kind of like... They seemed like... Uh, I saw them years later... I saw them in probably 2001 or two in Seattle. Right. And there was a big fight at the show, and we all got kicked out, and we got in fights with the bouncers and stuff. Just yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that stuff happens at their shows all the time, even, I don't know. even when they play now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is about that band, but it, it's like, it's funny. They had a crew that hung around them that was scary. And yeah. I think that was part of their reputation is and, that the, you brought these guys to play your club things were going to get broken stuff was going to get stolen yeah 
but the band themselves were <laughs> and are you still friends with those guys i keep in touch with a couple of them yeah, yeah. like jack yeah I keep in touch with jack yeah he's yeah. pretty funny on stage i, th- I can't remember he, he was just, he was hilarious yeah was, yeah they were funny. They were they were good. They were really good band. It's sad they're underdocumented because I think. Yeah, why is that? I don't. I don't know because they didn't tour as much. Right. Like a band like Black Flag was on the road constantly. They mm-hmm. did the U.S. over and over. I think TSOL did the U.S. twice. They just stayed home. Yeah, and I think like you said too, they were a little. They were kind of like gothy in a way. They had some goth. Yeah. Elements they, too, so maybe it, it doesn't fit in. With the like hardcore, yeah, like I, circle jerks, and I think know. for people that weren't there to see it, that's probably like, yeah, you hear some of those records that sound goth, and it's like it kind of oh. ends up in that more like 45 grave, um, yeah, I, or Christian death or something like because <laughs> it seemed like there was, I, I, I've never understood it because I obviously I wasn't there, but like, I, I wonder what your take on that is, like, sort of like Rick Agnew and these guys from the beach that were starting out in these kind of like, you know, surfers or jocks or whatever you want to call them. But then like they got into this kind of like goth thing later, which is like kind of more of what the original L.A. punk stuff was kind of more. Yeah, it was weird when, yeah, I mean, it happened. I remember when all the goth stuff started happening and suddenly hair was getting bigger and people had white face, including Rick Agnew suddenly using Christian death. Yeah. but yeah, I mean, yeah, that was just part of it. That's that was like early '80s. There started to be a bunch of different things. Like suddenly there'd be like a big rockabilly scene kind of came out of punk and like roots rock or whatever. Yeah, and, and the, the goth thing. Like it, you could see it was kind of atomizing. Yeah, splitting up. Like the Gun Club is kind of like the roots rock and the goth thing kind of. Yeah, going yeah. together like what, a, yeah, yeah. They kind of came from the cramps thing, but right. And yeah, they also had the big hair, but then in the by the time it got to early '80s, it seemed like everyone's hair was getting bigger. I mean, were the cramps were the cramps playing around a lot back then, or like? Oh yeah, they moved to LA in 1980, yeah. so suddenly they became a local band. Yeah, but it's weird. I you don't hear that much about them being documented in the early stuff, though. You hear about them like later, and I don't know if that's just because they continued to play. But I feel like when I when I when I see like these old these documentaries or something about like early punk stuff, I don't see a lot of cramp stuff in there. I think they're a weird. They get a short shift because they weren't really a punk band, right? So I think a lot of people have done documentaries on the punk scene that came out of New York, and they get left out because it's like you were more of a rockabilly band, and I think that's kind of how it always has gone. Like they came out of that scene, but they weren't playing punk music, right? Right. They were their own thing, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I but I almost it, they they got bigger obviously in the '90s. You know, like when sort of like almost yeah. like, like through like Beavis and Butthead or something because they definitely continually got bigger and bigger. Like as they went, like yeah, by the mid '80s, even they were like headlining the Hollywood Palladium and it'd be sold out. And, right. Yeah. But, when when did you first see them? I saw them on their very first tour. Oh wow! On the West Coast, they were opening for the Runaways. Oh wow! I think they had like a forty-five out. Yeah. But yeah, again, it was because I heard Joey Ramone was on Rodney Bingenheimer's radio show, and he was asked who were the good good bands in New York, and he's like, "Oh, Cramps, my favorite band." And they came out as this opening act. I'm like, "I'll go see him." Joey Ramone likes them. Yeah, 
So they were in New York before L.A. then? Yeah, that's where they started was New York. Right. And then they moved here after... But weren't the, they like from Sacramento originally or something? Ivy's from Sacramento okay. and Lux is from Ohio. Okay. And then, yeah, they kind of met... Why are all the best people from Ohio? I don't know what's in the water there. The, I don't the, get the that. The craziest stuff has come from that place. Because our drummers from Ohio, we have this kind of like... We'll have these drunken conversations after shows <laughs> where it's just like we'll like kind of go state by state and just like Ohio always seems to win out. I don't yeah. know why. Yeah, I know. It's I don't know what the deal is. That it must be a weird place to spawn like people like Lux Interior and Devo and Paraubu, the Electric Eels. I know it's crazy. And then even like even even bands from like the '90s and and continually like there's still bands. Like, yeah, yeah. It's always fucking weird Ohio shit. Like, have you been? Uh, I've driven through there. I've never played a show there. Uh, or no, uh, yeah, I played in like Columbus years ago. Okay, but, yeah, that's the only place I've been is Columbus. Our drummer's from uh, Cincinnati, Dane. He lives right by you. I, he says he sometimes he sees you and waves, and then he thinks that you don't know who he is. But <laughs> I, bet, I, I bet I don't see him wave. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Where does he live? He lives like a block over from you, like around that bend or whatever. Oh. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I see Larry, and I wave, and I think he just thinks I'm like some weird neighborhood guy or whatever. So. <laughs> Oh, crap. I'll keep an eye out. <laughs> I don't even notice. <laughs> <laughs> so the cramps. But years later, you ended up becoming friends with those guys, right? And and kind of helping them with, like, record distribution or what was well, it? I mean, I, we're going in all sorts of circles here as far as, like, timeline. But, but Yeah, I got to know them through my label because um, I had a couple things on my label that they liked. And they took the Demolition Doll Rods on tour. I right. did an Andre Williams album, and they're big fans. So I got to meet them, and then when they decided to start their own label, I was one of the people they I asked, like, do you think we should do this? Can we run a label? And I kind of gave them some pointers on here's where you press records. And, right. But now they got the label going through Revolver, and I helped them with that as well. Right, right. And that was, was that Vengeance, or that was the label yeah. they were on, or that's the label they have now? That's the label they had now, but it's also the label they originally, that's what their first two singles were on, Vengeance. They put them out themselves. Right. And so then, yeah, in the late 90s, they decided, like, let's get our masters back and start up Vengeance again and just put our records out ourselves. Gotcha. Okay, so you're working at Albertsons. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you're thinking, I want to start a record label. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I was. Uh, yeah, it was just something like a hobby. I wasn't thinking like I'm going to start this label and it's going to be my job. And uh, who who was like who were the bands that you were like excited about at that time? The first band that I that made me decide like okay I'm going to do it is the Gories. Right. And so I contacted them and they said where did yeah. you, how did you hear about them because this is like pre-internet stuff obviously yeah, so it's it, like it, how, I got I lucked out with them because a friend of mine did Alex Chilton's accounting for him and Alex Chilton was aware of him he had their demos they I guess uh, they'd sent them to him before they even had a record out yeah I feel like I read that somewhere yeah okay and so and yeah he wound up being like romantically involved with the drummer of the Gories but and produced their second album but he knew about him before they had a record out and he was telling this friend of mine, like, they got an album coming out. You got to check it out. They sound like the Cramps if the Cramps were black. Right. And so he told <laughs> There's only, only one black person. Right? Yeah. It, but still, it kind of, <laughs> yeah. it's an apt description. Right, he sings. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, the, the record came out and that had an address and I wrote to them and they said yes. And so it was like, all right, I'll do a single with the Gories. And 
Then there was other bands like the Cheater Slicks uh-huh. was another band I liked a lot. And there was a band, the Gibson Brothers, yeah. who are Ohio band. Great, yeah. And so those were kind of the three that I was looking at to start. And so once the Gory said yes, I was writing to all of them. And Yeah. And you're just doing it through the mail then? like just Yeah, it was yeah. handwritten letters. Then. Yeah. And then how would they send, then they would just send you the tapes or whatever? Yeah, yeah. Then they'd send you a dat or... <laughs> Right. Or a cassette or whatever they did. And, uh, yeah, you'd work from that. And how did you figure out, like, where to press the records at? or like? I had friends. Like, I knew John from Sympathy for the Record Industry, and he was doing, Where's he at now? He's in Olympia. Okay. He moved up there, and he's semi-retired from records and makes toys. Yeah. But, yeah, he, I don't know what he does <laughs> besides that. I think he's kind of semi-retired. Yeah. Um, but he was old. I'd known him for years, and so he gave me pointers on how to do it. And then I also, I knew Tim Warren from Crypt, right? And he gave me pointers. And he was in New York. He was in Germany at the oh, time, okay. but like I communicated with him by fax. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's so weird. So, so where were you? Where did you take the rec? Where did you get impressed at then? Um, Rainbow Records was the first pressing plant okay. I ever used, and they were yeah. in Santa Monica. Right. I think I went and picked up records for you one time there about 10 years ago. Yeah, actually. yeah. yeah. So. That's funny. Um, so, uh, so then did you have, like, you didn't have a website, obviously, but did you have, like, a weird, like, catalog, or how did you d- distribute it? had, like, a real primitive printed catalog, and you'd have to, like, run ads and fanzines. So back then, it was, like, paying money to, you know, Run an ad in Flipside or run an ad. There was, you know, back then it was all printed fanzines. So right. you'd pick and choose the ones that, you know, you thought would be worth your money. And, and how much did it cost to run like an ad in Flipside at the time? Not very much. I'd take like a small one, it'd be like, you know, 40 bucks, 50 bucks. Right. Um, yeah. And so you just have to do those and, and then hope word of mouth spread. Right. And how many, uh, like on the first Gory's record, how many did you press? A thousand. And, that, and and was that just an arbitrary number? Did you? No, it was kind of the standard where you knew, like, if you sold them all, you'd make a little money. Because mm-hmm. if you did, that's what those guys had told you was like, press a thousand. Just or... press a thousand. That's what you know, I knew. Sympathy was doing that, and I thought I could do it. And, yeah. And it took a little while to go through them, but you eventually did. Yeah. And then and then, and did you get how many copies of that that goes to the band then? I think I gave him a ten percent or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the same deal. Still, yeah, yeah. Twenty five uh, years later, that that didn't change. Yeah, and <laughs> <laughs> um, so and then and then when you set it up, did you think like, okay, I'm gonna do how am I, how am I gonna run the label? Am I am I gonna? Did you think like, oh, we gotta get a con- we gotta make contracts, or did they tell you like, no, no, no even like. Sympathy and Crypt and my friends at these bigger labels didn't do contracts or anything. So it seemed like they were just flying by the seat of their pants. So uh-huh. that's that's what I decided to do. Is that my phone or your phone? I feel like we're getting a vibrating. Is yeah, that, I think it okay. might be mine. Um, um, so so those so you were just like, let's just do it all handshake deals. We'll just fucking and then it's like basically if if you make, I'm just explaining as as like. I know people know this by now, but uh, if you if you make your money back, then it becomes like a fifty fifty split. Yeah, with the and, record label. Yeah, exactly. So, and then how often does that happen? 
it's, it's like a handful of artists basically bankroll the whole thing. <laughs> right. But I think that's a lot. I think that's common, though, with like an it's like major labels record. are like that, too. I think all labels are like yeah, that in a sense. It's like you have like Beyonce and then you have everything else. Except for like, I mean, I even, even publishing, I think, is set up like that. Like, I'll get a, a check for like publishing or something. But I think it's just like, okay, Beyonce sold this much. And then that means that we're going to just guess that Zigzag sold this, like, minute fraction of whatever she sold, and we're going to send them a... Is that how it works? It, sort of, yeah. I mean, but, yeah, you're m- mostly just that there's... You have the bands you know are going to carry the whole thing. And, I mean, because there's bands that I've never made any money on. I've sure. done multiple labels, and I'll still work with them, and I was just like, well, I know that I'll have some records that will will sell and can pay for that, and those bands will make money, but right. the bands that we don't make money on, like... They'll get records. That's about it. So when did so when did it go from like I'm gonna do this as a hobby because I like playing or I like collecting records and putting out records and I like bands to like now I'm starting to move into like I gotta like fucking keep track of this stuff and like I want to do it as a job or did um, you ever think that way? It just kind of snowballed till yeah. all of a sudden it was like that because yeah after I wasn't at the grocery store anymore a friend of mine who was a vice president at Warner Brothers like to renegotiate his contract he wanted a no- in his contract he had the right to run a no- an indie noise label and this was this friend of mine, Dave Katzenelson. Oh, I know Dave, yeah, yeah, for sure. Birdman Records. Uh, <laughs> he got it when he rene- renegotiated his gig at Warner Brothers. Like he I was VP at Warner. He was VP of of A and R. Oh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. So okay. he, he was a VP of. But a, then he of, signed like Mud Honey and like the. Didn't he sign like brain? Uh, no, not brain bombs, but um, boredom. Boredom. <laughs> brain bombs would have been even worse. <laughs> that would have been way worse. That would have been a worse story. <laughs> So, but didn't he sign like Boredom's and and Mud Honey, and then Boredom's became like the lowest selling record of all time on Warner Brothers? I don't know if it was the lowest selling record of all time, but he <laughs> released multiple records on Warner Brothers by the Boredom. But they were already on Warner Brothers in Japan, so right. it okay. was it wasn't that far of a stretch that he would sign them. Although it was pretty a pretty brave. Yeah. Move, I'd say, but he also brought the Flaming Lips to the label, and yeah, so he he, he signed Nick Cave. Um, yeah, he signed a bunch of stuff, but yeah, in his contract, he got the permission to have his own label because it would be a conflict of interest normally for someone working at a label to have their own, and so he wanted someone to run it, and then initially Warner Brothers was funding it, and uh-huh. so he hired me to be the, the label manager. This and, is Birdman. Yeah. Okay. And so we got an office in Burbank, and then I shared that with Birdman and Crypt and my label. And so I was doing that for like almost 10 years, running his label as well as mine. And then when he moved out to San Francisco, it was like, well, my label's going fine I'm on its own. I'm right. I'm up and running. Because for a minute there, I was doing publicity to, you know, uh, full disclosure, yeah. I was doing yeah. PR for you guys. That's a, right. A failed attempt at my own. PR company. Um, That's right. But we've all, you know, we've all stumbled along the way and we're all... You d- you did a better job than Heathcliff. Oh, well, yeah. Well, they, oh, Jesus. Well, in, <laughs> the records got sent out and no one got raped. Oh, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Hopefully just in general, I like did a better job. But, um, yeah. Oh, God. That's a fucking nightmare. That's another podcast. Um, but, uh, 
Um, oh, I do have a Dave Katz Nelson story. I don't know if I've told you this before, but he's, he's a super good guy. I really like him. Oh, yeah. uh, he's Love a great him. guy. But uh, my, I have a friend uh, who was an intern at Warner Brothers. Um, his dad was some higher up, and he uh, he needed a job. And so he was interning at Warner, and he uh, was under Dave Katz Nelson. But he was kind of this, like, more like, uh, he was following, like, fish around. Right. And he was kind of more into, like, acid and, like, <laughs> selling beads in the parking lot of a fish show. <laughs> Which is not Dave Katz Nelson at all. He's, like, more this, like, at, where's Dave from originally? New York? San Francisco. Okay. Well, all right. Yeah. Well, he, he seems like kind of this, like, New York Jewish guy kind of vibe. <laughs> you know, like, kind of like, hey, what's going, you know, anyways. Yeah, yeah. No, he for, does have for, the old school record industry vibe. Exactly. <laughs> like, firm handshake, so yeah. leather jacket kind of vibe. Like, yeah. I don't know. Have you watched, do you watch that show, Vinyl? I was going to say, yeah, he looks like he could, <laughs> he could be. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And this is, you know, I, I've only seen the first episode. I can't get into it. I can't uh, watch music shit. Cause uh, just, it's an awful show, but I watched them all. They're, yeah. I can't. That stuff too close to, like, home for me a little bit. And, like, when they get stuff wrong, oh, it drives me kind oh, of crazy. It's close to home for me. Yeah. Too. Even it's closer record to Record label, guys. Yeah. Screwing up wildly. <laughs> <laughs> but so, Dave, Ka- Dave Katz Nelson, this guy, uh, my friend Darren, was an intern there. And he's, like, traveling with fish, and he's, like, selling drugs in the parking lot or whatever he's doing. And he, and he goes to, a, like, a show, uh, like a house party, and he sees this band. And he comes in with, like, their demo to Dave's office. He says, hey, Dave, you know, I found this band. Like, I think they'd be great for the label, you know. And uh, Dave puts it on, like, 30 seconds and then just, like, takes the CD out and throws it in the guard. He's like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and it was uh, Dave Matthews' band. <laughs> well, Katz Nelson was right. <laughs> well, in the, in, yeah. in one way. Yeah. Not in no, a money way. No. I, well, that was, yeah, that marred his career a few times. So I know that uh, <laughs> but Green was, Day wanted him to sign them. And wow. He, so he passed Green Day. Him. Green Day wanted to, to have picked him as the A&R man they wanted to work with because he'd signed the Muffs. And right. He was like, no, no, I really want to try to sign the Gories. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. Well, the, the, uh, the same guy, like, months later came in and gave him another CD, which he then <laughs> <laughs> proceeded to throw him out of the office again, which it, it was apparently that band Cake. <laughs> Why wasn't this guy an A&R man? <laughs> well, he's very successful now. Uh, is he? Yeah, in marketing. <laughs> okay. Because, because obviously he knows a winner when he sees yeah, one, yeah. even if everyone else, even if we wouldn't. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I know. <laughs> I think Dave was right on both counts there. <laughs> so, He'd still be at Warner Brothers, though. <laughs> He'd exactly. Sign that's, them. that's the <laughs> the point of the story <laughs> is that uh sometimes you know when you're at work you yeah know, yeah but i mean you know i mean well, I've, I've passed on the white stripes and the black keys inside of the same year so. really yeah wow you just just two-piece bands you just aren't, aren't into two-piece bands no i had a few on my label already uh, it's, it's, it's it was like kind of like these were the generic sounding versions <laughs> of the weird ones i'd already done <laughs> But I I can see why you and Dave Katz Nelson had a, a working relationship. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, it, were were they uh, like so they were like sending you stuff like demos or whatever? Yeah, yeah. The White Stripes were friends with other. I had a bunch of D- Detroit bands on my label at a certain point, and 
they were friends with him, and I was hearing care for it. Not really, no. Um, I could tell he's talented, but no, I I still don't like. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now it's like I mean it's weird because I saw the White Stripes in Seattle, the first show, and there was like fifteen people there. And I was like, wow, this guy's a really good guitar player. He is a really good guitar player. You know, and, but he was also like, he had like a lot of attitude against uh, the fact that there were only 15 people there. Like, he was really like, why, like, why don't you guys get this? Like, why aren't there more people here really angry about that? Chastising the few that came out for the reason that no more people came out. (laughs) Yeah, and it was really weird to me because I think I was, you know, I was. 20 or something and I had been going to like a lot of punk shows and I I was like wow this band is very different and interesting to me and, and this guy's playing like slide guitar which I think I'd only seen like old like blues guys do before that you know but I was just like this 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 attitude is totally new to me to see someone be angry at the <laughs> audience that showed <laughs> but obviously like he had a bigger yeah, yeah. vision Oh, yeah, totally. And it worked for sure. But yeah. And now it's just like in every fucking, you can't go to the store without it. No, no. I mean, and he seems like he's a genuinely talented guy. And I think it's cool that he's doing his own label. And yeah. You know, and yeah, I I respect him. Yeah. It's just the music doesn't resonate with me. Well, personally. yeah. And I was yeah. friends with uh, his nephew, Ben. I'm sure you know Ben yeah, Blackwell. Yeah. 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 We're and good we buddies. were like, yeah, he's great. And we were like, we were trading. Uh, uh, records back when I was at Sub Pop and he, he used to call he used to email me and complain that he wasn't getting his singles in like a timely fashion <laughs> right but his email address at the Sub time Pop was fan. Sub Pop Fan one, one. at yes. AOL <laughs> <laughs> I, he only recently retired that email so immediately I was just like no sympathy for this person <laughs> didn't know who he was right but it, like I was just like Fuck you! Like I would, I was in charge of the mail order, so I'm just like you, fucking dipshit! Like with your stupid fucking email address. Like he's, he's like, he's like, why don't he writes me back? Like, why don't you get Jonathan Poneman's cock out of your mouth and send me my fucking records? And I'm like, you fucking asshole! Like, and we're just like wow, <laughs> I can't picture either one of you doing this. I think we were just joking around, or like we each thought we were joking around. Or right. So then, like. Somehow I'm like, we find out who we are. He is, and I find out, you know, vice versa. And he's like, oh, I'm coming to Seattle with the white stripes. White stripes. I'll put you on the guest list. You know. So I went from seeing them in like 15 people to like the next time there was like 4,000 people there or something like. Yeah, that. yeah. Ridiculous. Like I saw that. them their first time here too, and yeah, it was like small club, and then the yeah. very next time, yeah. huge. So okay, um, back to you. <laughs> <laughs> we could talk about the white stripes more. <laughs> that. As long as we don't talk about Heathcliff Peru, I'm fine. That's all I, that's all I can. We'll say. get to that. Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Um, uh, so then, uh, just we go over. We went through some of the early stuff, but then, like, you know, you you had like Jay Retard on there, and that became a pretty like that was a like a full time kind of. Yeah, yeah. It was like inside of a couple of years, all of a sudden, I had. I mean. Things were going fine. Like the dirt bombs are probably up until recently, like the biggest selling thing I'd done. Like right. The second album sold a lot. Um, 
But then, yeah, that Jay Retard and the Lost Sounds and then his solo thing and the Black Lips uh, on the label and then that band, The Ponies, yeah. did really well, like all in a span of like two or three years. Like, like in that early kind of, well, the early to mid-2000s. Yeah. And that was like when I was like, uh, that was kind of, I was, you know, 18 and 98, so then like in 2001, I'm like 21 and like... In the Red Records was like in Seattle, you know, I'm like hanging out with like the A-Frames guys and the Spits and going to see those bands. And, and that, if I ever like kind of could claim like a scene, that right. was like sort of our scene, you know? Yeah. And, and like In the Red was like the label that we all kind of looked at, you know, like that was kind of like our sub pop as far as like you would buy the the records just based on the fact that it said In the Red on it, you know, like... As opposed to like, you know what I mean? Right, like you're cool. buying yeah. stuff based on a label, you know? Like yeah, yeah. Which, which I, I did that with Sub Pop. Yeah, so. exactly. That's what I mean. You yeah. Know? Like there's a lot of people I know, especially people that like are 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 a little bit older. That in the late '80s, early '90s, that was like that's how you like found out about bands if you saw the Sub Pop logo on the thing. Yeah, you yeah, knew totally. Was, you kind of had an idea of what you're gonna. Now that that's kind of changed, but I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily think that's changed for in the red though. No, I'm still pretty much a niche label. Like Sub Pop didn't remain a niche label. Uh, yeah, they they do a lot of stuff that doesn't sound anything like those early records. But. Yeah, but you've kind of kept to what you're what you kind of d- did initially though right like more or less i mean yeah. yeah i mean now it's like i mean so well i guess what i was getting at with the j stuff and like the black lips and uh bands like that they like started out with in the red and then they kind of went on to these other labels is that is that just because you didn't ever have contracts with anyone or was that just based yeah on- yeah basically i still don't yeah i mean yeah it's like if you want to go <laughs> you can go you never thought about that, like I did. I did. I I was always told it was a good thing to avoid them because sure. m- most like I remember John Spencer telling me when the Blues Explosion were first going and they were getting really popular. He wanted to be on Touch and Go more than any other label because they didn't do contracts. It was a handshake, and he's like, the worst thing is to get stuck with someone and you want to get out of it. And right, and was, even if you have a contract with someone, and, and even if they don't want to do the it just seems like a nightmare right? yeah yeah it's it, and the only time that i ever really burned me not to have one was jay retard sold blood visions to another label yeah without telling me yeah <laughs> and i did have legal recourse but i am i gonna i'm also friends with jay or you know we're friendly i'm not gonna get a lawyer and sue this person and it's like this is what you want to do go ahead and do it i mean yeah, so just could I mean, and and I I totally get that. I just I, my question, I guess, on that is like, how did that work? So like, you had put out the record, yeah, and it had been out for like it had been out for three years, and I'd been paying him royalties. That record made a lot of money, and uh, yeah, then just one basically. Well, I don't know if I should say all the details, but yeah, his I, he another wa- label came in and. I think he shopped it to another label because he wanted uh, money for certain things to party with, and uh, right. Well, yeah, but um, but I just I'm st- I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around like that's just a, such an interesting. Twenty five years of doing this, it's the only time that ever happened, yeah. and in twenty five years of doing it, I've only dealt with one person remotely like Jay Retard. Sure. <laughs> 
Well, I mean, I guess you'd have to be in, even in the position that you could sell your record. Yeah, and to- that was exactly it. The Fat Possum had tried to sign him, and Matador wound up getting him. And I guess during the Fat Possum negotiations, they were talking about trying to buy the first album. And at that point, Jay had me involved. Like We could get a lot of money from him. And we talked about it, and we both decided, like, no, let's just... I'd rather have it on my label. It's, you recorded it for me. Let's just keep it there. It's doing right. fine. And then, uh, and in the hopes that, like, when he puts out the next record on Matador, that that would like pick up the sales. Exactly. On yeah, yeah. As you tour, like, if you're gonna f- go to another label, at least I've got this one. You know. And so, that was the plan. And then, uh, yeah, he he got other ideas, but. Um, <laughs> I don't want to speak. I don't want to say anything disparaging of the dead. No, but, um, of course. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, he he's a. I I saw the first time the first retard show in Seattle, and like, and I think I think I I think I was a year older than him. Mm-hmm. I'd snuck into the bar to see them, and there there was another band in Seattle called the Retards at the time. Oh, crazy! And Jay and this guy Derek, who's also passed away were apparently like fighting with each other online over <laughs> over the name and so during the show the other guy showed Derek shows up outside of the club is like banging on the window while they're playing Jay throws down his guitar runs outside the band keeps playing and just like starts beating up this guy on the street <laughs> and then runs back in and like grabs his guitar and starts playing like nothing's <laughs> happened, you know. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. So, I mean, you know, no, you, I've it, seen, I witnessed a few things like that with Jay. Yeah, you, 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 uh, you know, it takes, it takes a, it takes a certain type of person to be able to pull that off. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. so, you know, if you're, if you're getting in bed with someone like that, uh, money wise or yeah, yeah, business wise, you gotta. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, and it was a good run, and it's like I'd already had it three years, so it's like, what do you hope to sell? Although I'm sure they sold some when he died unexpectedly. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, apart from that, though, like not having a contract. Like Ty has never signed a contract. Sure. And, um, yeah, he doesn't have one with Drag City. He likes to do whatever he wants to do. And right. I kind of think that's a cool way to go. Um, I'm, I'm with you, man. I mean, I feel like it's like you you just uh, you say what you're going to do and you do it or, you, you know. And if it, either party is unhappy with it, then I'm going to leave. I take my ball and go home. And, yeah. And you and I know, like, getting lawyers involved unnecessarily is like, you know. Well, yeah. I just don't see the point unless you have to. <laughs> no. I have – there have been bands I've done rec- deals with and they're like, well, we have to have a contract. And so I've done them. But well, you've worked with like you've worked with like Sparks or something like there that. There was a contract for that, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and I and I bring them up just because I you know it's, it's a band that's been around so long and yeah. like I feel like trying to like you know maybe they they probably have their own idea of how they do things and you know yeah so, you yeah know. it's yeah they've been at it for so long there's no way they're going to do a deal without something in writing exactly <laughs> and that's fine I respected that it's Sparks. well they were in that roller coaster movie so they have yeah to, they <laughs> yeah. have to have a contract I'm sure they signed something for that. <laughs> 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 what was that movie called? Roller Coaster. Okay, right. Okay. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, so moving into the, the the new era, like I you mentioned Ty, you know, like uh, and I've had him on the show here too and and he seems to have like, you know, obviously kind of endless amounts of energy and yeah, creative uh ideas, but it, it, it seems like you're putting out a lot of bands that sort of are involved with him or that he's involved with and 
Danae works there and like I mean how much how much do you guys talk about that sort of stuff like um I think it's kind of just a natural progression because I'd been talking to Ty for a long time about doing a record with him and we've been going back and forth on and off and Slaughterhouse that was the first one right that Slaughterhouse was the first one yeah and we'd been talking before then um and so I kind of when I've done the label the whole time you're working with bands and the way you find new bands that you end up maybe doing something with is through the bands you're working with there'll be like this other band that we play with in town or we just saw these guys on tour and so now I've got with Ty like I've got to know him and now he lives here and and suddenly it's like I'm finding out about the Meat Bodies the Zigzags and Mm -hmm. Wand like all these things because he's they're friends of his or he's recording them or something like that that's kind of always just the way it goes like I'm sure if I move to another town, I'd end up working with some other band, and I'd be finding out about them bands through them. Right. So yeah, but it's been it's been a good relationship with Ty and Danae that I've found out about cool stuff. Have you had many employees over the years, or has it just been mostly you? No, I always just hired like there'd be people I'd have to hire to come pack a big mailing or whatever, right. and I'd usually just go to hire someone that worked at Annie M's and you, you want a hundred bucks to stuff all these envelopes. Sure. And as far as mail order and everything went, I'd just do it myself. But Ugh. yeah, it got to the point where <laughs> I just, I was, I went to the post office before I came here. It's just a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. No loading like bins full of stuff is not fun. And now Danae does that. <laughs> That's good. Okay. So, um, before you go, I want to, I want you to tell, um, uh, your story of interviewing the misfits <laughs> okay you were 16 did i already tell you this no okay <laughs> i've never heard it okay my my big story that's <laughs> yeah i interviewed the misfits for friends fanzine um this is my go-to story i guess i've this never heard my, it my, okay uh this is this is yeah one of the weirder things i did back in my punk rock youth uh-huh. but i'm a big misfits fan friend had a fanzine and he, it was kind of a goth-related fanzine, and uh, I asked him if he would let me interview the Misfits for it, and he agreed. So I arranged this interview with him through the record label, which was based in L.A., and they were coming to L.A. to play. And so I was told, like, yeah, you you can come up here the night before the show. They were playing on a Thursday at the Whiskey. Like, come up Wednesday night to my house. They were staying with a girl from the record label, and I could interview them. And... Uh, so the day before the interview was supposed to happen, the girl from the record label calls me and says, interview might be off, the tour might be off. Um, they had a bad incident last night in San Francisco where they hit a kid in the head with their guitar at their show, and he's in the hospital now, and he might not make it. And if this kid dies, they're going to go home and call off the rest of the tour and get off the West Coast. So I'm like, well, that's pretty crazy. And... I wasn't. I didn't interview bands. This was a first. It wasn't something I did. So I routinely did this. This was a first for me. And they already looked kind of intimidating. So I'm like, oh, great. Well, maybe it's good. The interview's off. But then the interview was back on the day of the, the day of. They're like, yeah, they're they're coming to town. You can go ahead and come up here and and interview them tonight. So I did. I met them at this girl's house and. You know, it was the Misfits looking exactly like they do on the record covers with devil locks and <laughs> swaths of black makeup under their eyes and whatnot. And huge dudes. Yeah. Um, well, Danzig wasn't as big, but the other two guys, big, big guys. 
but they wound up being really nice and I got along with them fine and they did the interview and we had stuff in common, notably horror movies like Danzig and I were talking about those. So we kind of hit it off. And as I was getting ready to leave, they were like, do you want to see the weapon? Do you want to see it? <laughs> and like, <laughs> and at this point I hadn't even mentioned the thing cause I was told like, don't, they don't want to talk about that. But then they started like, you know, we know you know about it. Do you want to see, do you want to see it? <laughs> so they got up this guitar case, they duct taped shut and they cut it open and it was like, a solid body like it looked like a Les Paul copy with one whole corner just missing shattered wood with blood over the whole thing and they're showing it to me giggling yeah. <laughs> kind of proud of the whole thing but um yeah then I also had mentioned to them I knew where Vampira lived and they asked me to take them to her house the following day so I came up the next day and had the misfits pile in my parents car and drove them over to the house where Vampira lived <laughs> and they knocked on her door, and no one came to the door. And Doyle, the biggest guy in the group, climbed up to this window up toward the ceiling of her house. He's like, "Yeah, I see an old lady sitting in there." So she's sitting in there, not answering the door because there's like a bunch of strangers knocking on her front door. I don't know what I was thinking, taking yeah. someone to this woman's house. But um, they left her a note and a copy of "Walk Among Us," and like, "Hey, we wrote a song about you." And uh, when I saw them the following day, I went to see go see them at Al's bar, and they're like, oh, we did a record signing today at Vinyl Solution or Vinyl Fetish on Melrose, and she showed up dressed as Vampira. Wow. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. But, yeah, that's my misfit story. <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to animate that for a, a YouTube video later. So. <laughs> you should. <laughs> I can just you in the car. I picture it as station wagon with like all of them in the back seat. It was an Oldsmobile, and it was uh, yeah, it was a big car. And Doyle was in the front seat next to me, and Danzig and Jerry only were in the back seat. And I just remember like looking at Doyle's forearm. It was right next to my thigh, and they were like the same size. Yeah, <laughs> like he looks the same now too. He's, he doesn't he looks like an action figure. Yeah, yeah. They, and when you said that thing about the them hitting the guy with the guitar, I remember reading that they like made their own instruments back in the day. Well, the bass was homemade. Like okay. I, I actually carried it for him to the whiskey. I drove them also to the show that night and um, the, the night after the interview. When I taken him to Vampire's house that night, I stuck around and then drove him to the whiskey. And he, he, the things wouldn't fit in cases. They had right. the skull on the headstock. Yeah. And he had two of them, and he's like, "Yeah, carry one of these." It's like the thing weighed a ton. Yeah, and that's why. Yeah, that's why. Because they apparently they were like kind of like weird plywood that they would glue together, and then they would like cover it with like this goop or something like a rubberized thing, and then they weighed like a million it, pounds. Yeah, yeah. Well, their dad owned a machine shop or something because right. they had like these crazy huge spikes on their on their <laughs> vests that they and they, they apparently made those at the machine shop they worked at. Right. But yeah, it was it was like hanging out with like the Road Warriors wrestling team or something. It was like they just looked insane. <laughs> and they went out in the day like that. Like when I picked them up to take them to Vampire's house, it's like shirtless with these wrist straps and you know black makeup under the eyes the devil yeah. locks down with the electrical tape holding them together at the end oh i didn't know that is that what they did there yeah they, yeah they had a little electrical uh, tape around the end that makes sense yeah well, i had no idea i guess it's the only way you're going to keep the hair from right falling falling apart ah, that's a pro tip yeah on you want to do your own devil lock the little electrical tape well larry um 
Congrats on the 25 years. Thank you. Uh, we're all looking forward to the show. <laughs> the the running joke I have here is that I try to get um, Henry Rollins on the show every week, and he's always too busy. And today, have you asked him? Yeah. Well, today he's he's leaving to London today. Um, yeah. But he emailed. He's very he's very quick about emailing me back. I don't know if you've. E- I'm sure. You've oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. one of the quickest emailers. <laughs> And I said, and he wrote me, and he said, "Hey, I, I'm going to London, and I'm busy for the rest of the year." And I said, "It's okay. I have Larry Hardy from In the Red <laughs> Records on the show, celebrating his 25 year anniversary <laughs> show." And Rollins wrote back and immediately and said, "Oh, Larry's aces. <laughs> Tell him hi for me." So that's awesome. There you go. Yeah. So Henry's aces in my and book. Henry's right, and I uh, appreciate you being on the show, and thanks for being here, and uh, we'll see you uh, in July at the Echo and the Echoplex, which I'm going to talk about later here. So. Awesome. Thanks, cool. Jed. Thank you. <laughs> All right, that was Larry Hardy. Uh, I want to thank Larry for being on the show. Um, I know this is, you know, it's the middle of the day for him. This, this is, He's usually at work right now, or at his house. The In the Red Records anniversary, 25th anniversary show is going to be July 14th, 15th, and 16th at the Echo and the Echoplex. Um, thanks to Mitchell and Liz for organizing that. Um, you can get tickets. I'm not sure what's going on with the tickets. I know some of the passes are sold out, but uh, I'm not entirely sure, so don't ask me. But if you go to www.attheecho.com, uh, you should be able to um, figure it out. Uh, I, th- I know they're doing single-day tickets, um, and there were some three-day passes, but Ty Siegel, Michael Cronin are going to be doing Reverse Shark Attack in its entirety. The Gories, the Oblivions, uh, Gogs, first show, Wounded Lion, Meat Bodies, Wand, The Lamps, Zigzags, Red Ants, Side Eyes, uh, Hope, Kid Congo, Boss Hog, Cheater Slicks. I could go on and on and on. All your... All your favorite bands from 2001 gathered in one room. Um, but yeah, go go to the go to the Echo website and check that out. And uh, we hope to see you all there at the uh, In the Reds 25th anniversary. And uh, hopefully, one of these days, we'll get Henry Rollins to be on the show. As always, Jessica Hunley is our producer. Adam Wade is our engineer. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>